Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. You know, I live in a community that has its own police department. And last night during the Astros game, they were so distracted, some thieves came and stole all the wheels off the police cars. But they are working tirelessly to... That's better when the, the thieves stole all the toilets and the police said nothing to go on. So, so thank you uh, for everybody who works so tirelessly to make this happen. Heard from somebody this week in West Virginia. And so if you're in your pajamas or if it's wine and cheese time for you, welcome. Welcome that you are here. And I want to let you know that next Sunday, Holly and I are going to be co-teaching together. And the title of the talk, we don't have yet. So no matter who you are, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, you are welcome here. So I have given this talk today a title that uh, occurred to me um, Stand in line of what we have been talking about. The title is Strung Along, Strung Out, and Strung Up. And the talk is going to be built around a question that Jesus asked. You know that I have been musing over questions that Jesus asked. He, he uh, taught that way primarily. And uh, I'm going for a couple of weeks to deal with the, the concepts, the ideas, the realities, the truths, the teachings that a particular question of Jesus um, kicks up for us. But before I do that, I want to comment briefly on two things. One is a, um, a wish that I harbor. Um, my wish is that you clearly remember everything we have talked about for the last two and a half years. <laughs> now, I know that is not likely because uh, if I get stopped in the hall here during the week and somebody says, what did you talk about Sunday? I go, um... <laughs> You know, we all have this selective amnesia kind of thing. I, I, I read a report some time ago from a neuroscience point of view that says that because of these devices, we don't have to remember stuff anymore. You know that? I mean, we don't remember each other's phone numbers because we have them in speed dial or memory dial or, or whatever. I can't remember Siri's cell phone number. Um, there's no need to remember uh, a lot of stuff because if I can't recall something, I can just almost immediately either ask Siri or ask Google, and it's right there at my fingertips, so there's no need to waste brain space remembering that stuff. 
But over the past uh, couple of years, I've been speaking to the theme of our living in this gap between the no longer and the not yet. And because of many factors, but primarily because of the wealth of information that is now filtering down to the general population from the arena that we call the new cosmology, we are having to rethink everything. Actually, the accurate, more accurate word is that we're having to reimagine everything. We're having to reimagine our theologies, our religious beliefs, our doctrines, all those things that were constructed using a paradigm that no longer exists, we're having to reformulate, we're having to rethink. And when we began this journey, I pushed off of the no longer by spending some time doing what I call religious deconstruction. We talked, for example, about how what we know as Christian fundamentalism came into being and how interpreting any part of the Bible literally is not only the worst way to interpret it, the lowest way to interpret it, but it is also the most damaging way to interpret it, both for those who do it and for those to whom it is done. It stunts religious and spiritual growth. And then we spend some time talking about the fundamentals of Christian fundamentalism. There is nothing in the teaching of Jesus to support any of them. And, and furthermore, the teachings of Jesus were not about believing. They were about belonging. They were not about being correct. They were about being connected. They were not about being right. They were about being related in a community of people. And all along, we've also talked about how once we have met our survival needs, our primary responsibility and opportunity on this planet is to involve ourselves in psycho-spiritual growth. Most people, and this is not intended as a judgment, uh, but most people live in shoes that are simply too small for them. It's like wearing the same clothes that you had in the eighth grade. And over and over, I have returned to the importance of our growing in wisdom, understanding, peace, love, joy, patience, and humility. And um, as a spiritual teacher, at least as your spiritual teacher, during the time that we are together like this, uh, I have an obligation to support your transformation regarding these things because if you're not living these values, I can't. Now, why is that? Because we are connected through millions of fibers. We belong to each other. If the, the new cosmology is teaching or telling us anything, it is this. And as you will hear me try to be even more explicit and specific about in the weeks ahead, um, we also have a religious obligation, a spiritual obligation, to help free Jesus from both the literal and supernatural framework in which he has been captured by some who claim to be his chief defenders. And, and, and perhaps no time in recent history has that been the case that it, as it is today in the face of public evangelical Christianity, which I'm going to talk a little bit more about later on. 
So that's my wish, that you keep all that in mind. I, wouldn't, I don't want to have to repeat it ever again, <laughs> that you know that. And, I mean, it's important to know this stuff because the, this is not the religion that the culture is about. It's not the religion that we get exposed to in the culture. Now, and now here's the quandary. I have a wish and I have a dilemma. And the dilemma is that what needs, in my opinion, to be voiced risk sounding political. And it is political, but not in a partisan political way. It's political in a sense that it raises up certain values and this is the role of public theology, to raise values that can be raised and talked about without being de decisive. Um, I think that if what I say in here doesn't strike some of that kind of political overtones, it probably does not participate in the teaching of Jesus because Jesus was executed as a public criminal for crimes against the state. And we have a hard time keeping that in mind. One of the cornerstones of the teaching of Jesus, and he was very Jewish in this, was the importance of truth-telling. Now, I know that there is no such thing as the good old days. Uh, nostalgia is not an aspiration of healthy spirituality. Uh, indeed, if we are to embrace evolution, uh, which we are called to do, or deny reality altogether, our theology has got to be about the future, not the past. The unknown future, the future that is not in our control. Nevertheless, I went to public school in Tennessee and there were uh, pictures on the walls of almost every classroom in my public school of a guy who we were told, he was dubbed the father of our country, and we were told he could tell no lies. And now we have a president who evidently cannot tell the truth. Now, I know all politicians likely give in to saying to their varied constituents <clears throat> what they need to say to get elected. And I think that it is not a concern, although it is so much a concern that our politicians cannot tell the truth, is that the vast majority of the American population don't seem to care that they cannot tell the truth. The, the pastor of the First Baptist Church in Dallas, Robert Jeffries, who has a huge megaphone for speaking in behalf of evangelical Christians, said that, <clears throat> these are quotes, you can look them up on the internet, if impeachment efforts are successful, it will lead to a civil war-like fracture from which this country will never heal. He said, quote, Christians who don't back Trump are morons like Christians in Nazi Germany. Okay. Now, one of my explicit commitments is to heal divisions and divisiveness, not to contribute to them, but when somebody like Jeffries makes a statement like that, 
and says, quote, Islam promotes pedophilia, and, quote, Islam is an evil religion people by evil people, end quote. It's not right to let that pass. So after a gunman murdered 11 people at the Pittsburgh's Tree of Life synagogue, the director of the local mosque in that community was determined that the victims of that shooting should not shoulder the funeral expenses alone. So he got busy and raised almost a quarter of a million dollars for the victims of that shooting. And when that was discovered, what he said, this Islamic man, Whatever, this is a quote, whatever this community needs will be there for them. If it's guarding the synagogue for them, walking to the grocery store with them will be for, there for, for them. A fact like that does not get a lot of attention in the press. By the way, the white nationalist who did that shooting ended up himself being shot. And while he was arrested and on the way to being taken to the hospital, he said, I want to kill all the Jews. That's in the paper. The doctor and the nurse who treated him in the hospital were Jews. The hospital's president belonged to that synagogue. And they tended to Robert Bowers, the gunman, as if he were any other patient. The doctor, Jeffrey Cohen, made a point of talking to Bowers to see what kind of person could turn an AR-15 on grandfathers, grandmothers, and two disabled men. He saw not a monster, but, quote, a very lost guy who listened to the noise telling him that white Christian America was being invaded by Jews, by caravans of Central Americans, by foreign vermin. Dr. Cohen said, words mean things. Words are leading people to do things. With every violent incident that we hear about out there, I wonder how many other lost and angry people are out there who are being radicalized by words that are coming from the White House, from the media, from politicians, from TV, from the internet. You and I have a job to do out there. To, sit, to put out a, a, another story. There's a phrase in rabbinical teaching, tikkum olam, which means repair the world. And if we are to follow Jesus, we have that solemn obligation. Jesus did not name call, but he did call people out. And if in my effort to do that, I cross the line in your opinion, please know that is not my intention. Let me know. Let's find a time to talk about it because it is not my desire to contribute to divisiveness, but rather to bring healing to the whole table. We've got to be careful how we say what we say and who we say it to. I, I'm, I'm trying to come from a place where I believe this world our country is in deep need of repair. Wounds need healing. We need more love, much more love, and way less hateful rhetoric. 
One day this florist went into a barber shop to get a haircut and he got one and talked to the barber while doing it. And some of you know what that's like. And it was over, he got out of the chair and reached for his wallet and the barber said, nah, this is on me today. I want to do a favor for the community. And the florist thanked him and left. And the next day when the barber went to his shop, there was a thank you note wedged in the door and a dozen red roses. And uh, so the barber opened up, and he, he did his work. Later on that day, this cop came in, got a haircut, and they talked and did the usual thing. And the cop was through with his haircut. He reached for his wallet, and the barber said, no, 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 so it's on me. I'm doing nice things for the community today. So just, it's on me. So the cop thanked him and left. And the next day when the barber got there, there was a thank you note in the door and a dozen donuts that he could... <laughs> share with people who came to his shop the next day. So the next day, a member of Congress came in for a haircut. <laughs> and when he went to pay his bill, the barber said, I'm sorry, I can't take your money. I'm doing nice things for the community. This one's on me. The congressman thanked him. And um, when he left next morning, he got to the barber shop and there were 10 more congressmen waiting there for a <laughs> free haircut. There's a painful recognition of truth in that story. We live in a system that is corrupt and corrupting. So I want to put the question of Jesus we're going to look at for a while on the table. As I said, we're going to spend more than one session on this. This is a question that is found in, in um, and maybe I'll wait and do this in, in a couple of weeks, but uh, if you look at the database of Jesus' sayings, you will find those that Jesus said, Jesus likely said, Jesus didn't say, but are in line with what he said. Jesus clearly didn't say. Jesus didn't say this, but his disciples heard this. Get that? I mean, it's a different. And the saying is, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I tell you to? That's in Luke. And I love the way that Gene Peterson renders the passage. He says, why are you so, so polite with me, always saying, yes, sir, that's right, sir, but never do a thing I tell you. These words I speak to you are not mere additions to your life, homeowner improvements to your standard of living. They're foundation words, words to build a life on. <clears throat> By the way, I will point something out for you that you may or may not have noticed. But uh, when evangelical Christians, like the one that I mentioned, or Franklin Graham, Billy Graham's son, or any of the ones that get big megaphones, when they say what they do and their remarks that align them with the political right, I want you to notice something. They never mention Jesus. Never. There's a reason for that. You think about it. So I, I, have, I have spent years in here, years, literally, committed to the issue of religious literacy about Jesus. Who was he? What did he really say? 
And, and, and they're matters that I've given a lot of time and study and attention to. But now it's time to deal with the matter not of religious literacy, but of spiritual literacy regarding Jesus and, and see what it means to look like him, embodying his teaching, his loving, liberating, life-giving way of living. What might it be for us to embrace that way of love? What would it mean for us to bring our lives and living into alignment with the Jesus who said things like, blessed are the peacemakers, love your enemies, you cannot serve God in wealth, love your neighbor? What would it mean in a practical day-to-day living to remember and model our lives after this dark-skinned Middle Eastern Jew who was unafraid to sit with others, with those others considered unacceptable. He was unwilling to be owned and controlled by the powers that be, and he was free to reach out to the friendless and the needy. The church that blesses the status quo is not the church of Jesus. There is a line that I'm sure most of you are familiar with. Gandhi was once asked, Mr. Gandhi, what do you think of Western civilization? And he said, I think it'd be a good idea. (laughs) Uh, I'm raising the question, what do you think of following Jesus? And I want to suggest that it would be a good idea idea. So I said I've given this title, this talk a title of strung along, strung out, strung up. You know what it means to be strung along, right? I think I first heard that phrase in high school. The uh, really good looking girl went out with a really good looking guy, not because she liked him, but because he was the captain of the football team and he had been voted most popular and if she went with him, there was a chance that she might ride on his coattails and be voted most popular too. And behind their backs, everybody said, she's just stringing him along, you know. Stringing along is a game that's been going on in human relationships for as long as there have been human relationships. The rich, the powerful, that is those who run the system, have been saying to the disadvantaged forever, now you just be patient. Things are going to be okay. Just, Just wait. So we all live up, end up living inside this big illusion because we get strung along. We, we fall for a bunch of lies. And we are told them all the time. Um, Sherry and I had have a, had a jarring experience the last couple of weeks. I cannot stand to watch TV for the most part. I confess, my confession last week, I watched football. But mostly I can't, whether it's, I don't know where you get your news source from, it's all biased. And we tend to watch what confirms our prejudice. Uh, it's, it's, just so, it's just so hard. So we watch mainly things that we have recorded 
or movies that we can stream or programs. And there are people that I, I go to and say, what do you recommend? What do you watch? And, and um, you, you are about to get maybe one of the most valuable recommendations I have ever given in here. Right? Some of you have already heard it. But somebody recommended that we watch a program called Anne with an E. How many of you have seen this? I promise you, it is the best thing. Is it not? It is the best thing. It is so good. Two seasons. Uh, it's just fabulous. It's on Netflix. And I promise you, if you go watch it, two seasons, you will love it. They, it it's shot in the last century. Well, it's shot now, but it's set in the last century off Prince Edward Island off of Canada. The sets are good. The directing is good. The acting is good. It just, it's just wonderful. So when we were finished watching that, I asked the person who recommended that, what else would you recommend? And they said, well, you got to watch a program called When They See Us. How many? One person. Hard. Did you see the Oprah show that followed it? This program is about the five adolescent, I'm talking 14, 15, 16-year-old kids who were caught up in the Central Park event where a woman was raped, and they were accused of that rape, charged, found guilty of that rape in April of 1989, and they were sent to prison. And overall, they spent between five and 12 years in prison. And after a length of time, 12 years, the man who committed that crime pleaded guilty. And they went back and they got DNA evidence to establish that there was no doubt that he is the person who committed that crime. Now, people who were involved in that to this day argue the rightness and wrongness of the convictions of those young men, and you will just have to go online and make up your mind to yourself for what, what you think about that. But they were completely exonerated, and... and um, as moving as the four-part series, and I guarantee, I want to warn you, heads up, that watching it is hard. Um, as moving as the four-part series is, even more moving is the hour-plus-long interview that Oprah Winfrey did with the actors, the director, and then with all five of the men who are now out of prison, and you can... You can see them, see them talk. And um, I picked up two sentences in that program that really stayed with me. The first was made by the producer-director of the film, who, when she was asked what she wanted people to take away from it, she had many things to say. But the one sentence that just went through me was she said, I want people to know that the system isn't broken and needs fixing. The system works exactly like it's supposed to and needs changing. 
I don't know about you, but I can hear this and I can acknowledge the truth of this. And at the same time, I can make every excuse in the world not to do anything about it. Bill, why do you call me Lord and not do what I teach? Well, Jesus, that's easy. I'm teaching about you right now. Doesn't that count? Oh, I had something else in mind. I had a friend who years ago suggested that I read a book called Sermon to White America. And I bought it, and I started reading it. It just got too difficult for me to read, too painful for me to read. But since then, in light of some justice work that's being done here in uh, Matt Russell and Project Curate and Holly's urging and a number of other things, I've not only picked it up but challenged the steering committee of Ordinary Life to read it with me so that we can talk about it. I challenge you to read it too. Um, in its pages as well as in the series, when they see us, I keep hearing that phrase, Bill, why do you call me Lord? You're just stringing me along. The other sentence came from the defense attorney in that debacle who was asked what his big learning from it all was, and his, his learning was the justice system isn't just. And, and we know that. We know that. We know that if you are of a certain color or below certain economic level, you're not going to get the same treatment in society or in court as if you're more affluent and white and the thinking on the part of most people is but what can you do now you probably know this but maybe you don't there is not a single county in the United States where someone making minimum wage can afford a two-bedroom apartment to live in that county. Not a single one. In Atlanta, Georgia, for example, the wage needed to rent a two-bedroom apartment is $21.27 an hour. Georgia's minimum wage is $15.15 an hour. A tenant in Boston would need to work 141 hours a week at minimum wage in order to afford a two-bedroom apartment. In San Francisco, that figure stands at 203 hours. That's the equivalent of five full-time jobs. So this sort of thing leaves everybody, liberal and conservative, economically well-off and not, a beneficiary of the system or not, strung out, because we're all affected by this. All of us are affected by this. Why is that? Because we're all connected. In the, in the first seven to ten years I lived in Houston, I saw more cases of what we call burnout than I would ever have imagined. And it was not among the patients in the hospitals or clients in various pl places where trainees and clinicians work, but it was among those being trained to deal with the hurting people. We were strung out. 
I, I, I know personally that there was nothing in my academic training. There was nothing in the books I read, nothing in the lectures I attended, nothing in the seminars I sat through that equipped me to deal with the degree and amount of abuse that exists in the American family that came into the hospital. Nothing. I was not prepared for that. Now, that it exists in the American family should not be so surprising because statistically, that's where we spend most of our time. But that there is so much of it. And young idealistic therapists, psychologists, chaplains wanted to fix it, to stop it. And our success was minimal. We got strung out. I think this is one reason that more people don't get involved in the necessary work to achieve peace and restorative justice is because it's just so difficult and disappointing. I will forever be grateful to the supervisor who said to me one day when I was dealing with a suicidal patient in the hospital, he said, Bill, don't over-identify with your role. And don't over-identify with your expected goal. Just get in there and do your work. That's all you can do. Maybe that's why we call him Lord, but don't really do what he asks. We know how difficult and thankless and apparently hopeless it is. We forget other teachings. Whenever you did to one of the least of these, fed the hungry, gave water to the thirsty, took in the homeless, clothed those who were without, visited the sick and the imprisoned. Whenever you did to someone who was overlooked or ignored, it was me you were doing it to. Back in the, the 70s, back when we had dinosaurs, I was very privileged to go to uh, Bill Martin, Dr. Bill Martin, my friend, arranged this. I was very privileged to go to a lecture at Rice University to hear Lauren Isley speak. I don't know if you know Lauren Isley or who he was. He was an anthropologist and very, uh, you can look him up on the, on the internet. He was a great storyteller too. He was a great, great guy. And even then he was passionate about the environment and hopeful about the future. He told a story. He said, once upon a time, there was a wise man who used to go to the ocean to do his writing, and he had the habit of walking on the beach before he began his work. And one day, he was walking along the beach, and he looked down at the beach, wave in front of him, and he saw a human figure moving back and forth on the beach like a dancer. And, and he smiled to himself and thought how wonderful it was that there was somebody who was walking on the beach and dancing to the water. So he walked faster so he could catch up with this guy. And as he, he got closer, he noticed that the figure was a young man and that what he was doing was not really dancing at all. He was uh, reaching down and, and running into the water and running back up and reaching down and running into the water and running back up. He came up closer to him and he said, uh, good morning, I just, I'm just curious about what you're doing. And, and the young man uh, paused and he said, well, I'm throwing starfish into the ocean. Why are you throwing starfish in the ocean? 
And the young man said, well, the sun's going to be out in a few minutes, and the tide's going out, and if I don't throw them in, they're going to die. And the wise man said, but young man, there are miles and miles of beach. There's starfish along every mile. You can't possibly make a difference. The young man bent down, picked up another starfish, and threw it, and he said, made a difference to that one. So peace, love, joy, patience, and humility. I hope no one would argue with or about the value of these virtues. And I want to encourage you to do more than simply entertain them as nice ideas. I'd like for you to get evangelistic about them. These are the things that can shape the future of our life on the planet, even though it's just one starfish at a time. And I would like for you to see these things as good news when we embody them and take them into the world. Now, uh, good news is actually what the word evangel, evangel means, evangelical means. And... Um, you know, I've, I've been thinking because I have to do a homily on a Hebrew passage this week about how absolutely useless it was to study Greek and Hebrew in university. <laughs> I, mean, I don't use it every day. Well, every other day, but I, I, I've, I think I've shown this to you before. This is the first page of Mark. This says, according to Mark. And the first three words in the Greek, and you know, Jesus didn't speak Greek. I love this first, first page in the Gospel of Mark because the Gospel that goes to here and all this bottom stuff, these are variant readings and various other manuscripts so that those of us who grew up in churches being taught that we had a literal interpretation of the Bible, which one? And the beginning... In the beginning was the good news, evangelicon. The word evangelical simply means good news. It didn't mean right-wing political stance. <laughs> it's good news. What's the good news? Have you read it? I'm not in the Greek, but... Have you read it? You know what the good news is? Well, John the Baptist says, uh, actually, John is under here. It begins with John, not with Jesus. And John, John says, um, you know, the real star of this drama that's about to unfold is not me, but it's coming next. And man, he's going to show up. He's going to change your life. He's going to change your life from the inside out. My translation. So Jesus does show up. He goes in the desert. He has a 40-day retreat. Uh, and he comes out. And he begins to call people to follow him. And they do. They just get up and go. And he went to the synagogue to speak. And the first thing the leaders wanted to do when they could get their hands on him was string him up. That was a good sermon. And he ends up saying to anybody who will listen, follow me. 
They're going to string me up, but you come on. Now, the story didn't happen like that. Um, that's a story. And if you really want to know what likely happened, read this book by Bruce Children called Rabbi Jesus. Nowhere in his ministry did Jesus say, look, I, I'm going to die so that you can go to heaven when you die. That's a perversion of the teaching of Jesus. He did die, but it was because he taught and embodied that all people are children of God. All people. The labels we put on them are perversions of their identity. The good news Jesus experienced and embodied is that of seeing himself and all others in God. Let's say that again. The good news that Jesus experienced and embodied is that of seeing himself and all others in God and all things in God and seeing God in himself in all things. The corruption that the goodness of Jesus became was like looking through the wrong end of a telescope. The, the, the focus is too narrow. The gospel, I hate to tell you this, I don't really, but the, 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 the gospel is not about you individually. It's about us. It's about everyone, all that is, all who are, everything that is. Somebody asked me recently, making fun of me, they call me a Buddhist Methodist. <laughs> they said, why do you talk about Buddhism so much in, in, in your teaching? And I'll tell you, I'll expand on it soon someday, but there are two reasons that I would name right now. Number one is that for a long time, the contemplative tradition was lost in Western Christianity. We got so focused on what was in the head, what to believe, getting it right, that we lost the soul of what it meant to connect with sacred from, from the soul. Um, and, and that's the downfall of fundamentalists, is that they focus on literally believing in things. And the second reason I focus on Buddhism is they got suffering and death down. They know That's where they start. And, and perverted Christianity tries to teach people, you know, if you just believe these things and join our group, you're not going to die. Well, I mean, your body will die, but you, you won't die. If you die, your, your soul's going to slip out of your body and float above for a little while, have one of those out-of-body experiences, and then you're going to go around the earth a couple times, <laughs> and then you're going to flit off to heaven. Unless you're liberal. <laughs> and you go, go around the earth a couple times, you're going to go up and then go left up to heaven. <laughs> No, 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 no. And this is what the Buddhists understand. If you're going to have life, you've got to die now. Go ahead and get it out of the way. The way of Jesus is not a belief system. It's a life and death system. It shows us how to give our lives away, how to give love away, how to give our fear of death away. And in so doing, to connect with the sacred and with each other and with all that is so that I can look in the eye of somebody who is in hospice care, in the hospital, and say to them from the heart of my heart, you have nothing to be afraid.
Now, it does involve suffering, this death of which I'm speaking, because it means giving up our idea of superiority, our idea of being separate. Actually, I'm coming more in my own work to understand that real suffering is the price we pay for not giving these things up. So, when I was in seminary, I got significantly infected by the theology of Karl Barth. Karl Barth was a uh, German theologian who wrote a lot of books of theology. Church Dogmatics was the title of his stuff. I'm not sure that I would be a Bart follower today, but at the time I read him, when I was leaving Baylor and going to the seminary, Bart, Bart did something for me that was a real gift because I had been so burned out, burned up, strung out, strung, whatever you want to call it, by the, the, the fundamentalist around me, I, I sort of wanted nothing to do with the word evangelical. I wanted, Certainly, the Bible, I didn't think so. You guys have ruined the Bible. But Karl Barth gave back to those of us who studied him what he called the strange new world inside the Bible. And that was really a gift. To, um, to be that. And, and Rudolf Bultmann was a theologian who helped also when he said, whatever you do, don't take this stuff literally. So there were some, some words of Bart that I want to offer you as a, as a new way to conceptualize the church because it fits with this strung up business because he was strung up, you know? You know that. You know, strung up. Jesus was strung up. These are words of Bart. They crucified him with the criminals. Do you know what this implies? Don't be too surprised if I tell you that this was the first Christian fellowship. The first certain indissoluble and indestructible Christian community. Christian community is manifest wherever there is a group of people close to Jesus who are with him in such a way that they are directly and unambiguously affected by his promise and assurance. These may hear that everything he is, he is for them, and everything he does, he does for them. To live by this promise is to be a Christian community. I'll read that to you again. And, and, and uh, this is the Salvador Dali painting of the, cru the crucifix. This is in the museum in Glasgow, Scotland. They crucified him with the criminals. Do you know what this implies? Don't be too surprised if I tell you that this was the first Christian fellowship, the first certain indissoluble and indestructible Christian community. Christian community is manifest wherever there is a group of people close to Jesus who are with him in such a way that they are directly and unambiguously affected by his promise and assurance. These may hear that everything he is, he is for them, and everything he does, he does for them. To live by this promise is to be a Christian community. Peace, 
love, joy, patience, humility. Folks, they're good news. There's, good news. There's evangelical stuff in these words and what they mean. Go share it. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this. You carry precious cargo, so watch your step, and Holly and I will see you back here next Sunday. Thank you.